In November of 2019, the New York Daily News reported a story about a break-in in the home of an 82-year-old woman named Willie Murphy. And in this story, it explains that in the middle of the night, she heard the sound of an intruder breaking into her house, and she says that she felt bad for the intruder. She told reporters, quote, he picked the wrong house to break into. That's because Murphy was already a critically acclaimed bodybuilder, having won the World Natural Powerlifting Upstate New York Championship in 2018. Jot that name down, Willie I.E. Murphy, and Google her later because she is so much awesomer than you could possibly imagine right now. So she called the police quietly, and then she says she used the darkness to lie in wait for the assailant. When the moment was right, she struck with all the strength and agility she could muster. Murphy said, I picked up the table and went to work on him. After breaking the table, Murphy briefly poured a bottle of shampoo on his face before continuing to wail on him with a broom handle. The police who responded were so impressed, says Murphy, that they wanted to go on my front porch and take selfies with me. Quote, I really did a number on that man. Last week, we began looking at the idea of spiritual warfare that we find laid out in Ephesians chapter 6, that there is a, a battle going on all around us, and that we are part of it whether we know or not, whether we actively participate or not. And much like the case with Willie Murphy, it is not necessarily the youngest and most agile and most confident in the flesh that are going to win the day, but rather the most mature and the most centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christ himself. But unlike in the case of Ms. Murphy, we cannot win this battle by human strength alone. We struggle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, uh, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual adversaries. And this is something that even Jesus' own disciples struggled to grasp. We're not fighting against fellow humans, ultimately. There, there's a passage that oftentimes people like to, to bring up to say, look, Jesus did want us to be ready to fight at any time. It's in Luke 22. Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you, the one who has a money bag should take it with him, likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment." And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. Now, I, I know that that sounds like Jesus is saying, make sure that you're ready for a brawl at any time on its face. And that seems to be what Peter thought he was saying, because Peter was always ready for a brawl at any time. But later, when Peter pulls one of those two swords in the garden, Jesus says, put that away. Because the one who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And it becomes clear that when Jesus said, that's enough, he probably meant more like, I said all that stuff, and it was about me fulfilling scripture and me being numbered amongst the transgressors, and all you heard was, make sure you have a sword, enough. That, that Peter was thinking flesh and blood adversary. Well, Jesus was talking about having a spiritual sword, and we see that here in this passage, naturally. We think in the same terms these days, all too often. If we could just silence these people then God's kingdom would really have a chance to flourish. If we could just get that political party out of power or into power, if we could just reintroduce mandated school prayer, then everything would change. Recognize that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against heavenly darkness. 
And you say, that sounds backwards. Heavenly darkness? Darkness in heavenly places, meaning the highest of places, on a plane with which we could not contend. Because even though we are called to this battle, we are not fit for this battle by ourselves. Just as our enemies are not fleshly, but are spiritual, so the strength that we need is not natural, but spiritual. In verse 10, again, we're told, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. This means our strength that we need for the day is from the Lord Jesus. And this is pictured in this passage as armor that we wear. And every aspect of that armor comes directly from Jesus and, in a sense, is Jesus. A helmet of salvation. Jesus is our salvation. The breastplate of righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. Right? The belt of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The footwear of the gospel of peace. Jesus is our peace. Jesus himself, the personal work of Jesus, is the gospel, the good news. So in essence, what's being taught here is just what's taught elsewhere. In brief, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is basically, in picturing it as armor, a way to give a more detailed treatment of the implications of that simple command. We have similar teaching in Romans 13. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the work of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is certainly the same thing. The armor of light, the armor of God. Two verses later, he says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Putting on Jesus, putting on the armor, essentially the same thing. The armor of God, the armor of light. In 2 Corinthians 6, this is called the weapons of righteousness. And you say, what's with all the war talk? Well, this is what we are called to, a holy war. And we find throughout the ages that the armor and weapons that an army has makes all the difference. From Greek fire in the Byzantine Empire to the atomic bomb, there is much to be said for courage and strength and determination, but they only go so far if someone is completely outgunned and outmatched in their weapons and armor. Castle warfare, which was the, the standard for centuries and centuries, build up big, strong walls so that if someone attacks, you can repel them. It disappears almost overnight when cannons become prominent. A cannon can take out a castle walls quickly. And so... Even in the scriptures, the Philistines come in. What do they have? Iron weapons, iron chariots, stuff that these Bronze Age, late Bronze Age Israelites don't have. And so they find themselves on the receiving end of an awful lot of oppression. And for us, too, what we put on before we go into this battle makes all the difference. And I mean all the difference. In John 15, Jesus said, apart from me, you can't do very much at all. No, he didn't. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And then take the other side of the coin, that very famous passage, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Apart from him, I can do nothing. Through him, I can do everything. All things. Therefore, put on the full armor of God because it is going to make the difference. This is a call to abandon any reliance on our own strength. In fact, we see that in this little clause here, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The implication there is you will not be able to stand if you don't have the armor on. And after hearing Paul 
in, in the passage last week, again and again, talking about talking up the number and strength of our adversaries at some length. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It should be no surprise to us that victory would be absolutely impossible apart from this divine armor that we're given. We will fall without it. 1 Corinthians 10, we read, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Clearly the context there is if he thinks he stands on his own two feet, in his own strength, if he thinks he can stand apart from God holding him up, he will fall. But, remember when we we looked at this word closely last week, finally, be strong in the Lord. I told you that that word be strong in the Greek, it isn't be as the verb, strong as the adjective. Rather, it's a verb which means to be strengthened. It's something of a passive thing. Be strengthened in the Lord and in the the dominion of His might, the, the strength of His might. Be built up because Jesus has already won the victory. And in Him you have victory yourself. Colossians 2, 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And so this armor means that we are clothing ourselves in that victory that Christ has over darkness. So let's talk about this particular armor. People sometimes will read this passage, and because it's the Bible, they assume that that Paul must be referencing some Old Testament kind of armor, like the kind of thing that maybe uh, Joshua or Gideon would wear into battle. But that's not the case. You have to remember that Paul is writing this letter to Ephesus in Rome under house arrest. So he is in chains, he says elsewhere, And he is writing to these churches to encourage them, to correct them, to teach them. And the chains themselves and guys wearing Roman military garb are pretty much the only things that are going to be a constant for Paul. And so it makes perfect sense that he's going to look at the armor they're wearing and he's going to use it as an illustration as he is writing to one of these churches. And we know that he's talking about Roman armor because he mentions both the whole thing and individual pieces, the sword and the shield, with technical terms so that we know exactly what kind of shield and what kind of sword he's talking about. But make no mistake, while Roman armor may be the metaphor at hand, this is not a Roman strategy or outlook. This is the armor of God, furnished by God, because your own armor would be useless. David had figured this out, although he had to relearn the lesson again and again and again as he's numbering his armies and trusting in his chariots and horses and the like. But one time when he had figured it out was when he wrote Psalm 35. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. And now he's saying... Arm me. Paul's saying we need to be armored and armed by God himself. Now, the Ephesians even had myths of gods providing some of their champions with armor so that they were ready for the battle. Vulcan, the Roman god of fire, was said to have forged the armor and weapons for all of the gods and the heroes of Roman mythology. But this is different. Because it's not just God giving armor to us and saying, here, I made this for you. And this is important. If you checked out, check back in. This is God giving us 
his own armor to wear. What do I mean about that? Look at Isaiah. Isaiah 11, 4-5. Maybe write that down if you're taking notes. Pop it in the, uh, the margin of your Bible. Isaiah 11, 4-5 and Isaiah 59, 17. 11, 4-5 and 59, 17. We read in Isaiah, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Faithfulness shall be the belt of his loins. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. This is the Lord and his Messiah who properly own this armor and wear this armor. And now, not unlike David when he was about to fight Goliath being offered the king's bronze armor to wear, our Messiah, our king, the king of kings says, here, wear my armor into battle. And unlike with Saul and David, where the armor was way too big and just weighed him down, and he said, I'd rather be quick on my feet, this armor fits us perfectly somehow and is fitting for us to wear into battle. This Christian life, regardless of what you hear and the, the kind of super alpha male versions of it you might see on Twitter and stuff, it's not the sort of take you out into the mountains on a helicopter and, and drop you out into the wilderness with just a, a pocket knife and some twine and a compass and see who survives kind of thing. No, we are outfitted for victory by our God. He's given us the best armor possible for the fight in which we find ourselves. And that's important. I don't know if you remember, but early in the Iraq war, there was a big scandal. It was in 2004 where there were soldiers saying, we don't have the armor we need. We're having to go into landfills here in local landfills in Iraq to find scrap metal, and, and we're finding some of this uh, ballistic glass, but it's kind of compromised, but it's better than nothing, and we're welding it onto our vehicles to properly armor our vehicles. And people said, this is outrageous. How do we send men into harm's way and women into harm's way without proper armor? Well, we have perfect armor. But while God has freely provided it, we must put it on. That's the command here, right? Take up, put on the armor of God. It's repeated twice. John Calvin said, God has furnished us with various defensive weapons, provided we do not indolently refuse what is offered. But we are almost all chargeable with carelessness and hesitation in using the offered grace. And here's another of these tensions in this teaching. Because, yes, be strong sounds very active. Be strengthened sounds more passive. I made you this armor. Here it is. Sounds like, okay, we simply receive it. But the command is to put it on. There's still something for us to do, even though God has provided everything that we need. Last week, I also mentioned the tension inherent in portraying the Christian life as war in light of the fact that Jesus said, peace I bring to you, my peace I give you. It's the same Jesus, of course, who said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. There's a tension in there. And we ask the question, is, is conversion the beginning of war or the end of it? And we determined that in order to have peace with God, we must be warring against the world, the flesh, and the devil in a spiritual conquest. But we are strengthened by this armor when we put it on. And, and, you know, it makes sense that Paul would reference the Roman military to illustrate this tension because he's writing right smack in the middle of what we call the Pax Romana, this period of, of tenuous peace starting uh, with Augustus 
where for quite a few years there was relative peace in the Mediterranean world, but it was peace that was rooted entirely in absolute military dominance, right? Peace by superior firepower, as they might say today. And this quote-unquote peace was attained by never backing down, never going soft, never giving an inch. And Paul looks at that and says, that's kind of what we need spiritually. Because there were these guys, these, these Roman legionnaires, who were essentially the, the building block of that peace, heavily armored infantrymen, and everyone knew what they looked like. And everyone saw them moving around the Roman Empire. And the sight of these highly trained, highly disciplined, heavily armed and armored soldiers was a constant reminder of Rome's might because they could stand against any adversary. They'd proven that again and again. And of course, that's the outcome for us as well if we put on the armor. And that is repeated three times in just these few verses, that we will stand Put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13, having done all, stand firm. Then in verse 14, stand therefore, fastening on the belt of truth. And between those, we have a similar word, withstand, in kind of a, a club sandwich of terms. Stand, withstand. These are the two elements, I think, of our battle. We must stand and we, we must withstand. And you say, those sound very similar. Well, let's look at the terms. First of all, we must stand. Stand on the evil day. We must stand firm. It's not as passive as it sounds. You know, you'd think that if a soldier was just standing around, just standing, he'd get yelled at. What are you doing? Just standing there. Unless he was standing guard somewhere. But this term here in the Greek, histami, here it means to put forward. Or maybe to push forward. We see a similar thing in 1 Chronicles 21 where we read, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. This was one of Satan's schemes. And he stands against Israel, and the result is that Israel, for a time, falls. By the way, that exposes this nonsense you'll hear sometimes that in the Old Testament there was no devil like we know him in the, the Christian tradition. That Satan was just, you know, one of the angels and he's doing God's bidding all the time. He's standing against Israel and God is standing with Israel. But we also see here that to stand then is, is to move against, to fight against. And this is what we're called to do. The armor may be almost all defensive, but the battle that we are involved in is not all defensive. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. There is a forward motion in this standing. We see this in James as well. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's a, a wonderful religious movie called uh, The Christmas Story that we watch every year in which there is a bully named Scott Farkas. He's got green eyes or something. Yellow eyes? Yeah, yellow eyes, green teeth. I don't remember. He's, he's nasty. And, and there are so many kids he picks on, and they're often together in a clump when he picks on them, but they all freeze. They all scatter. They all run away. They all abandon the weakest or slowest one to get beat up and pummeled until one day, Ralphie, that great hero of the faith, snaps. He's been pushed too far. 
and he jumps on him and he just wallops him like Willie Murphy walloped that poor intruder on that day in 2019. You see, the, the enemy continually comes after us when we're weakest, when we are not unified, when we are distracted, when we are angry at God or others, when we are, when we are down and discouraged and giving in to that and we're not finding the joy of the Lord uh, to be our strength. He will come after us like, like a scavenger coming after the nearly dead. But the Scott Farkas effect, as I call it, means that when we turn and submit to God and resist the devil, he will flee from us. Stand. What they were doing with Scott Farkas all along was the opposite of the Pax Romana. Rather than some tenuous peace by dominating militarily, it was some tenuous peace by never getting the guy upset and staying out of his way. A Christian does not have that option. A Christian has authority in Christ and must exert it. Otherwise, we have abandoned our post and have gone AWOL. I read a story this past week about a general named Jonathan Wainwright in World War II who had been captured by the Japanese army and was being held prisoner in a concentration camp. And there he was cruelly treated. He was beaten, especially because he was a general. They wanted to, to kind of crush the spirit of all the others. They would see their leader uh, had kind of lost his will as well. And, and finally, what happened at the end of the war, when the Japanese surrendered, was that a United States Army colonel was sent to this camp to announce personally to the general that Japan had been defeated, and that he was free, and that he was, in fact, in command at that very place where he had been a prisoner. And so he heard these words, and he returned to his quarters, and was immediately confronted by a couple of the guards who had been mistreating him for so long, and they began to mistreat him and try to abuse him again. However, Wainwright, with the news of the Allied victory, said, No, I am in control now. I am in command. These are my orders. And the guards kind of looked out and got the nod from their superior officer. And from that moment on, he was in control. So many Christians are content to say, I'll get kicked around by the enemy. I'll be dragged around by my own shameful lusts. I'll just kind of keep it all quiet. I'll try to keep some equilibrium. I'll be formed into the world's mold. I guess I have no choice. After all, I live here. Rather than saying, no, I am in command here. I am wearing the armor. I am the ambassador of the King of Kings. And this is my victory because it is Christ's victory. If we wear the armor, we have to stand against the enemy. Otherwise, we're just we're posers. This is, this is a bit of a problem, by the way. I know some military guys, and they get really, really upset when they see someone dressed like they're in the military, but they're not. They call it stolen valor. It's all over YouTube. People calling out the stolen valor. You're, you're, you aren't really in the military. You're just wearing that. There's those who want the recognition. They want to wear the uniform. Uh, they, they'd like to wear the weapons and the armor, I think, if they could, but they haven't actually submitted to the grueling ordeal of basic training. Or they want the discounts, but they haven't given up their right to call the shots of where they go and what they do, when and what they eat, when and how long and where they sleep. They haven't taken an oath to put themselves in harm's way. Now, maybe they play a bunch of Call of Duty, but that's all sitting down. This is standing we're talking about. And a lot of Christians want to wear the uniform and use the lingo, but not to stand against the enemy. They want victory, but not the daily slog of battle. They want glory, but not at the expense of danger, toil, and snare. 
And to that, Paul says, put on the armor of God and stand against the enemy. And put on the whole armor. Don't miss that. In fact, that's all one word in the Greek. Whole armor. It's the word panoplia. I'm sure you hear in that our word panoply. Isn't that funny how panoplia, which is a nice sounding word here in the Midwest, can become panoply? (laughs) It means a large or impressive collection of something. Panoplia means the entirety of all the implements. Pan all aplia. So, So all of the armor is required for you to be wearing the armor. It's like, remember when Pierce Brosnan was James Bond? And so he was contractually kept from wearing a tuxedo in any other movie because it would conflict with his James Bondiness. And he was in the Thomas Crown Affair, a bad remake of an okay movie. And in that movie, there was a scene where he was supposed to have a tuxedo on. So what they did is he unbuttoned the top couple buttons and had the uh, bow tie just sort of hanging down. And technically, he wasn't wearing a tuxedo because he didn't have the whole thing on. If you're not wearing all of it, you're not wearing the armor. In fact, that's often how the military guys can spot very quickly the stolen valor guys, right? They're, they're wearing part of it. But then there's like purple sneakers. Or, or they're, they're wearing everything, but the, the boots aren't properly bloused and there's nothing on their head. And in the same way, we have to wear all of the armor if we are going to wear any of it. And people have always tried to wear parts of it. The Pharisees tried to wear righteousness, but without the gospel. They had had the good uh, breastplate, but they didn't have the shoes. Some today try to wear, say, salvation, but without faith. They're trying to do it by works. Or salvation and faith, but without righteousness. They say, ah, it doesn't matter as long as I believe I'm saved. It doesn't matter how I live. Or perhaps they're, they're trying to have the gospel, but without the word of God. So they instead, they say, I don't need the sword, but I, I want to have the gospel, and I want to form it into whatever I want doesn't protect you if it's not all there. But when it's all on, you are fully protected and able to stand. No soft underbelly exposed. These schemes of the devil that this armor is meant to protect us against, that we are called to stand against, are often designed to entice us to remove the most uncomfortable piece of the armor so that we feel like, I'm pretty well protected, but the enemy can come in cunningly and bring us down exposing us to an attack where we're most vulnerable. For that reason, we have to wear all the armor all the time. All the time. While you're evangelizing, while you're grocery shopping, while you're watching TV, while you're at church. Definitely while you're watching church on TV. The use of the word schemes, the only other word use in the whole Bible where we see this word schemes, also here in Ephesians. We looked at it a few weeks ago. Ephesians 4.14. He said, be no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. There are many who are drawn away from the gospel by the deceitful schemes because they said, well, I'm hearing someone preach. I don't need to have the armor on right now. How can you tell me that that preacher is preaching something false and is a wolf in sheep's clothing? It makes me feel so good. Exactly. We need to have the armor on, all of it, all the time. The first three pieces of armor, the belt, breastplate, and greaves, were worn continually on the battlefield. The last three pieces mentioned, the shield, helmet, and sword, were kept ready for when actual fighting begins. And notice that he actually lists them in the order that a Roman soldier would put them on. 
But taking them off at all is a rookie move as a believer. Thinking to ourselves, I know where the enemy has tripped me up before, so I'll get this armor on before I head out there. Like a soldier convinced he'll only be attacked on the battlefield. When the fact is that any place is a battlefield if you're attacked there. In peacetime, go ahead and take your armor off. That will be after Christ returns. In the great work of the mortification of the flesh, John Owen wrote, Never think your lust dead because it is quiet, but labor still to give it new wounds, new blows every day. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. But as sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and its waters are for the most part deep when they are still, so ought our tactics against it be. Be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even where there is least suspicion. There is a, a great demonic conspiracy to lull the church into a state of saying, you know what, I don't think I need this armor right now. And I think to a large degree, it has been working. Wayne Cordero shared a story uh, he had read about a tribe that had been trying to capture ducks in the river for, for quite some time. It was almost a, a point of pride if you could get a duck because they were so skittish and they saw you coming from so many different directions, but ducks taste so very good. And so somebody came up with this idea of placing a pumpkin in the river and letting it kind of go downstream in amongst the ducks. And every time it happened for a while, they'd see it coming and they'd fly away. And then after a while, they'd come back. And so they kept on putting pumpkins in, kept on floating them down, until the ducks accepted the presence of the pumpkins as just kind of part of life. And then one of the hunters cut the bottom open, pulled all the gunk out, put it on his head, and got in the river and slowly floated down right into the midst of the ducks and grabbed a few of them. And they had a duck feast that night. If we have our armor on, we are not going to say, oh, well, we can tolerate some of these pumpkins in our midst. We will be on guard. We must be on guard all the time. But wait a minute. What, what about this on the evil day? That you will be able to withstand on the evil day? Doesn't that imply that, that there are days that aren't the evil day? That I can kind of take off my armor and take a break from this warfare? Now, the evil day is any time of trouble, affliction, and great temptation. It's what we read about in Psalm 41.1, the day of trouble. And you can't put that on your calendar, like, oh, two and a half weeks till the day of trouble. Oh, the evil day is coming. For you specifically, the evil day could be any day. Although St. Paul said in the last chapter that all days are evil days. He said, redeem the time for the days are evil. But for you, you don't know when it might be coming, so be on guard. This is what Peter told us as well in 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering is being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And that word that Peter uses there, resist him, is the same word Paul uses in, chapter, in verse 13 here uh, to say withstand. Remember I said there's stand and there's withstand. This word withstand, it's the same word as stand, histemi, but with anti at the beginning. Anti meaning opposite or against. So to stand against, to resist, to oppose. The NIV really, I think, captures the gist of it when it says, stand your ground. Don't be moved. Don't be pushed back. Withstand. Most of the time, this is what our daily struggle amounts to. Because the war is already won. 
Unseen enemies want us to yield, want us to cede ground, and not giving up ground when the enemy attacks is 95% of the battle. In 1 Corinthians 15, we are commanded to be steadfast, immovable. And that does apply in this battle. We must be steadfast, immovable, knowing that in Christ you will overcome, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet as Paul elsewhere tells us. And again, there's that tension. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That is the peace that we have, knowing that in him we will overcome to the end. When we think about how vast the kingdom of darkness is, we can become overwhelmed and discouraged. Everywhere, people are selfish and godless and cruel and lustful and covetous. Everywhere, there's a lack of justice. Everywhere, people call good evil and evil good. And you know, there have been many dark, evil empires over the ages, but the kingdom of darkness, referred to here, makes all of them look like nothing by comparison. The quote-unquote thousand-year Reich of the Nazis lasted less than a dozen years. Satan's kingdom, on the other hand, is the most widespread, vast, well-financed, well-equipped the oldest and most successful by far of all the wicked empires the world has ever seen. And yet we are called to make war against it. And we are equipped to make war against it. And we are promised victory by one infinitely more powerful than it. All that remains is for us to believe, to obey, to suit up, and do it. To put on the armor of light and go out in service of the kingdom of light. Put on the armor provided and you will be invulnerable, invincible, immortal on the spiritual battlefield. God has not left us defenseless. He's given us complete armor from head to foot, from the helmet of salvation down to the footwear of the preparation of the gospel of peace. It includes a helmet, a breastplate, belts, boots, sword, and shield if we would put them on. And next week we'll start looking at these things one at a time in the order that Paul gives them to us, starting with the belt of truth. For now, I just want to encourage you to be on guard, to think to yourself, am I wearing the armor? Am I wearing it and ready? Am I watchful? Am I prepared that I might be part of a spiritual battle today? That the enemy may see a weakness here in my armor and I need to turn to God and be strengthened in the Lord and in the power of His might, that I will stand and withstand on the evil day. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these words of encouragement and instruction from Your Word. We pray that You would impress them on our hearts. These four or five verses we've been looking at the last couple of weeks are to us so encouraging because they tell us that we do have victory in You. And Lord, we pray that we would not be those who get tired of the armor, feel it chafing and take it off and say, I'll, I'll take my chances today without being strengthened in the Lord. Lord, we, we pray that as we look at each element of this armor over the next few weeks that you would impress on our hearts the need for each and every element so that we would be, as a church and as individual believers, prepared for the battle that lays ahead of us. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.